We study billionaires, and this is episode 89 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, 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 how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, who's out in Denmark. Today, we have a really fun guest for you because everyone likes to talk about oil. And oil is such a hot topic right now. And I just so if people are listening to this show into the future, the date today is 15 May 2016. And oil is just like such a hot topic because it's been all over the place. And so what we did is we went out and everyone knows we had Morgan Downey on our show, who is an oil expert. I'm sure our guest today has heard of Morgan from his book, Oil 101. Yeah, she's nodding her head. But man, do we have a guest for you today that knows oil like no one else. And this is Gail Teverberg. So she comes with a decade of experience in oil specifically. But more importantly, Gail runs a blog, and the name of the blog is ourfiniteworld.com, where she's been blogging. How long have you been doing it, Gail? For a decade, have you been blogging? Since 2007. Since 2007. And that's when it was really interesting, too, back in 2007. But her blog is all about the energy sector and oil specifically. And she literally has just years upon years of writing some of the most astute information on the, on the oil industry. Gail has a master's of science from the University of Illinois at Chicago in mathematics. Right now, she's the director of energy economics at Space Solar Power Institute. And Gail, going through your site, you have three main objectives that you like to do. And the first one is to be a researcher. And that is beyond evident when you go to your site. The other thing that you uh, like to say that you're intimately involved in is your actuary work. And we might get into that a little bit during the show. And then the last thing is that you're an educator. And this is the thing that Stig and I just really empathize with because that's what we're trying to do with our show is we're really trying to be educators. And so, Gail, the first thing that we want to talk about is you. We want to get to know you a little bit so everyone in our audience can learn more about you. How does a person like yourself get so interested in oil? How does that happen? Like, what, what was the fascination for you that really kind of brought you into this interest, if you will? Well, I'm an actuary. And an actuary, we model insurance companies, what they're going to be doing in the future, what kind of investment returns they're going to be getting, and various kinds of related things, how much costs will be going up in the future, much returns will be going up. And I became aware that essentially actuaries were assuming that returns would be the same indefinitely. They would never start going down. But, you know, this is what economists were assuming as well. And this, you know, really didn't make sense to me because we live in a finite world. So this was in the back of my head all along. You know, there's something wrong with this whole assumption that people have. Well, then about 2005, I became aware of the oil limits story and the oil limit story was being told as a geological depletion story. And that's true, it is. But it's also a financial story. And I realized that from 1973, 1974, and what had happened back then. 
because I worked in a financial industry back then. And this was not some kind of, oh, you know, it just goes up and goes down. It doesn't affect anything else. It, you know, you have some really bad recessions and you have the uh, stock market going way down and you have, you know, all kinds of bad effects. So I came from that background. So in 2005, I started, I became aware of the situation and I started doing some uh, reading. I wrote some articles for insurance and actuarial periodicals. But I could see that I couldn't really continue to work for my employer and write about this because, you know, if you're working for an employer who's doing work on pension plans, forecasting the returns for the next umpteen years, and they're saying that the returns can be, you know, whatever it is, we'll say 8% a year or 10% a year or something like that. And I'm saying they're going to be going down that's not going to go over too well. So I needed to leave the insurance industry. So in 2007, I took early retirement and I hadn't expected that it would ever, quote, turn out to be anything. I didn't have any ambitions to be a great blogger. That is phenomenal. And I'll tell you, we've looked at your site. We know the numbers that are coming through your site. And I mean, you're throwing up some huge numbers of people coming through your site and reading your information. And it's, it's not by a marketing trick or anything. It's purely your content is phenomenal, Gail. It really is. Just to kind of tell our audience. So Gail wrote a white paper and the name of the white paper is Oil Supply Limits and the Continuing Financial Crisis. Brilliant writing. Absolutely brilliant. We'll have a link to this in our show notes. Stig, go ahead and fire off the first hard question that we have. So, Gail, Krista and I have carefully studied the debt situation in the oil and gas industry. It has tripled to more than $3 trillion in just 10 years. For me, this is just concerning. And knowing that many of the hedging contracts that was written back when oil was, say, at $80 plus has just run out, it's really adding fuel to the fire. So how do you expect the debt burden will influence investors and the overall economy in the time to come? Well, the way I see it, Energy is really the foundation of the economy. And way back from the hunter-gatherer days, the way we distinguished ourselves from other animals was the fact that we could pick up sticks and burn them. And when we could burn them, we could cook our food. And when we could cook our food, we no longer needed the big heavy jaws and the big intestines. We could grow bigger brains. So over the years, we gradually added more energy sources. Now, as went on, we found that we were burning down all the trees and we got ourselves into fossil fuels. We got into coal and natural gas and oil, but they have to be cheap. They have to not take too much of our own energy to do it. Once you start getting a big debt burden, you suddenly realize that there's something badly going wrong with the system. The energy products are the ones that should be throwing off lots of taxes. They should be allowing the governments to build roads cheaply, for example. But if instead the energy products are the ones that are themselves generating debt, then you got debt upon debt upon debt upon debt, and everything starts looking like it's going to topple over. And that's when the government suddenly say, oh, we've got to do something to stop our big debt situation. And what should they do, Gail? 
I mean, if, if you were the CEO of the oil and gas industry, if, if that was even a position, should they just start deleveraging? What, what should they do? Well, what happens is that they sort of automatically deleverage by going bankrupt. And that bankruptcy you know, passes on to a new owner who sinks with a new lower basis price that they bought it. They say, oh, we can make it given the lower prices that we're being charged right now for renting a drill rig. But they don't realize that those prices are going to go right back up again if those oil prices go up. So they really can't make it at that lower price. Yeah, and Gail, I think it's a really interesting discussion. I had the pleasure of speaking with Morgan Downer, who uh, pressed me before, about this specifically. And we kind of agreed that there would be a lot of turmoil in the time to come. But in the end, it will probably lead to less supply, which will so in the long term have a, an effect on the oil price, pushing the upward direction. Would you agree with that statement? Is that also how you see the debt burden play out? The way I see it is that ultimately the oil price is going to go down. It may spike up, but the general direction is down. And the thing that people miss is that demand depends on people actually having jobs to buy the oil. And for that, we really need you know, the middle class that's been cut out to a bigger and bigger extent over the years. So we don't have enough buyers for the, the things that we're creating with this high-priced oil. And this is what puts a cap on the, the prices. Um, I think the other thing is that the way prices are determined is really based on a combination of wages and how much debt increases. So if your wages are going up a lot, you don't need a big contribution from debt. You know, people can go out and buy a car if their wages are high enough. But if their wages aren't high enough, then, uh, I mean, they could save up for the car and the car, car is cheap, there's no problem. But if their wages aren't high enough, they need debt. And uh, if the price keeps going up, they need a longer and longer term auto loan and they need it uh, at lower and lower interest rates so that they can sort of make it. And it does kind of look like it works for a while. But of course, these poor people can't buy another car very quickly because, you know, they now have a whatever seven-year loan or however long it is, and it takes forever to try to pay it down. And they need interest rates down near zero to keep the whole system going. So, Gail, whenever I think about the price of oil, I really look at two main variables really kind of dictating the price on it. The first one you've kind of hit at a little bit, which is the supply and demand piece whether you have a ton of producers, kind of like what we have right now from the last uh, cycle, the last credit cycle, where you had this massive influx of producers because the cost of money was next to near nothing. So you had all these people that flood the market and you got this oversupply situation versus the demand. So the supply and demand is one piece of that. I think the other part of it that I don't necessarily know a lot of people give enough credit to is central banks and the control of fiat currency and how that currency is also playing a part in the overall price. So as credit expands and contracts, I think that that really, you know, the commodity versus currency thing really kind of plays into that pricing portion as well as the supply and demand. Those are the two variables that I kind of view the price of oil through. So I'm curious if you have a similar opinion 
And I'm kind of curious to hear your opinions on this currency to commodity correlation. Well, you know, as we've had this situation where the various countries have been trying to lower interest rates farther and farther, what we've had is the quantitative easing and such things. And what we've also had is a lot of, quote, hot money running around from country to country uh, based on where the lowest interest rate is and such things. So we have kind of a funny situation that I had never thought about much before either. Back after the 2008, we had a price spike in 2008, and then we had a big crash in 2008 in prices. But right before the turnaround in prices, that was when quantitative easing was introduced. That was to get the interest rates down to try to get more debt out there, and it would pump up the economy enough to bring prices back up again and bring the economy back up again. And in fact, it did sort of work. And so as long as the quantitative easing was in there, it gradually pumped things back up. I think 2011 was sort of the high point. And then, you know, the oil prices sort of started drifting down between 2011 and 2014, just a little bit, but it was, but the general drift was downward. Well, once we got to 2014 and United States decided that it was going to discontinue its quantitative easing and it was going to actually raise interest rates as opposed to the rest of the world not raising interest rates. Then we suddenly had a situation where the dollar started rising relative to other currencies. And it also affected hot money that was out there being lent out because the interest rate was so low. So suddenly, instead of wanting to lend out those dollars, that interest rate, they wanted to do something else. Well, that's what starts shifting everything around. And we ended up with the dollar very much higher than these other currencies. And that's when it wasn't just oil prices dropped way low. It was coal prices. It was natural gas prices. It was food prices. You name it. Because these other currencies, when looked at in dollars, could no longer buy as much oil. You know, on a day-to-day basis, practically, what happens is as soon as the dollar starts rising again, then the price of oil and these other things starts going down. And then it reverses and you get the same effect. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? 
a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So I kind of got a follow-up question where, and this one's a little bit off the cuff, but I listened to an interview between Boone Pickens, who I'm sure you're familiar with. (laughs) We uh, read one of his books. We weren't impressed. But the interview was with Boone Pickens and Carl Icahn. And this interview took place uh, right around Christmas timeframe of 2015. So just a few months back. And the two of them are sitting there and the Boone Pickens, I'm sure you're well aware, had been saying oil is going to be $70, $75 a barrel within, you know, by the end of 2015, which he was dead wrong on that. And in this interview that I was listening to him and Carl Icahn, he was still beating that drum that oil's going back to $75 a barrel. And it was really interesting to watch Carl Icahn's response to Boone Pickens. Both of these guys are billionaires. And Carl Icahn said, yeah, you know, I... I don't necessarily agree with you on that one. I And he was very skeptical. So Carl Icahn was basically saying, I think it might even go lower than where it was at in December, or at least hang around for quite a while. And Boone Pickens was still beating the drum that it's going back up to $70. So I'm curious, your opinion, who do you side with, Carl Icahn or Boone Pickens? Well, my view is that the oil price is not going to be able to stay very high for very long. You know, it may bounce up a little bit, but I think that the general level is going to be under $50 a barrel. And in fact, it may go much lower. So now we've got to put the time horizon that you kind of feel that that's the case. I completely agree with you. That's that's the same song and dance I've been saying for a year now. Okay, Stig, uh, I think Stig views it a little bit differently and he knows that I'm kind of, you know, coming after him a little bit with my comment, but really I'm not. Stig, <laughs> Stig looks at things more from a value investing standpoint of, hey, it's, it's not a bad price. I'm going to buy it while it's not a bad price because my holding period's forever. Okay. So that's his vantage point. 
Now, and, and I have a very similar vantage point. I guess I'm just not a buyer at this point because I have the same opinion as you. I think it's going to really kind of linger for a lot longer than people realize. But I think when you're looking at that, when do you see that kind of timeline maturing? Because I believe during the next credit expansion, which I think is going to be completely driven by quantitative easing and helicopter money, I think are the only tools that, that our government really has left. I think when they go into that mode, full-blown, they're just, I mean, really going at it strong, trying to create this next credit cycle. I think that oil is going to really kind of shoot up and have a a major recovery in a major way. Do you see that playing out? And we have no idea what time horizon this is, but let's just say that this is a year or two years from now. Do you see that kind of coming back or do you see this really lingering for a long period of time? Well, at most, I think that the helicopter money and, and more quantitative easing is maybe going to get it up to $75 a barrel. And maybe it'll last for six months, you know, maybe it'll last for eight months or something. But I think these negative interest rates are having a terrible effect on banks. The banks are doing badly to begin with. These new Basel three rules are terrible from the point of view of increasing the overall credit to the economy. You know, there are a lot of things that people don't realize that are counterproductive with things. uh, They think they're lowering risk, but they're really reducing the total uh, growth rate of the world economy. So I completely agree with you on that. But I guess this is why I think that maybe, and I'm not saying this in the next year by no means, I think it's going to get pretty ugly by the end of the year. And I'm obviously a big bear. But this is my mindset of why I think that maybe three years from now, you might see a, a recovery in the price is because I think that in the next year to year and a half, you're going to see a lot of death and destruction in the oil industry. I think you're going to see a lot of companies go under. And I think that in the end, when that happens and you, because this is a fight of market share, I think we all agree on that right now, this price this price action that's really kind of pushing it lower, it's a fight of market share. You got every producer in the world fighting for this market share. Would you agree with that, Gail? Is that really kind of get to the heart of the issue? I definitely agree that it's a flight of uh, market share, that everybody needs to continue to maintain their market share. All of the economies depend on the oil exports. All of the oil producers' economies depend on selling oil. So they will do anything to maintain this uh, production. So you don't get the uh, reduction in supply when prices go down as fast as you would expect. And of course, having derivatives in place to hold prices up helps that all the more. And the fact that they have so much debt that they have to service makes it, they can't just quit. And what happens when you have bankruptcy is these companies that buy them out don't even stop production. So no matter what happens, the supply just keeps on at whatever price it is. They will just stand on their head to to get out as much oil from the ground as they can. So the lower price doesn't really cut back on supply. So what happens is that I think we end up with a much worse financial crash than what people are forecasting. They each person starts from a narrow view of what, you know, okay, the oil thing will do this. Okay, well, maybe it will. But if you take your basal three rules and you take your natural gas and you take your coal and your electricity overall problem, and also the fact that you have the uh, lower currencies relative to the dollar 
all of this money that was borrowed, the U.S. dollars that were borrowed overseas in dollars become so much higher, harder to pay back when these other currencies are lower, you know, that creates another kind of a problem. So we've got so many different debt problems all at the same time, they sort of start compounding. And that's a big point that uh, Ray Dalio, your last point there is as far as all this dollar denominated debt around the world and as the dollar gains strength and, and becomes more valuable, it gets so much harder for all these emerging countries to pay back all those loans that they have in dollar denominated debt, which is a huge issue. And I think people don't realize the magnitude of how much dollar denominated debt there are or pegged dollar denominated debt that's out there because that's a whole nother issue is how many currencies are pegged to the dollar. And I don't think people really realize how big that behemoth really is. So a fantastic point. I'm going to throw it over to Stig for his question. So Gail, I have to admit that when I started out, I was really mainly focused on the demand side when it came to the oil market. And I had this thesis that as long as we're growing demand for oil, and we do have a growing demand for oil, we're talking about an extra million to 1.5 perhaps a day, year by year. Well, then the price of oil would gradually increase considering the proven oil reserves would be depleted. But after the recent crash in oil prices, I had to reevaluate my original thesis, at least for the short run and perhaps also for the long run after reading your material. Because after reading your material, I got a much better understanding of the supply side of it. So what you found is that as price drop, production increases, which is completely counterintuitive to conventional economic theory. And you briefly touched upon that point before also in your response, but could you please provide us with the most important points to understand the supply side of the oil market? Well, I think I, I was trying to explain that situation before that, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the current debt that we have out there, the, the current derivative markets we have out there, companies are unwilling to cut back. They, they especially the oil exporting countries, desperately need to keep up their oil exports or they won't be able to feed the their large populations that they have today. They depend on the high tax revenues that they get. And so they can't live with $50 a barrel oil. They start, start having to get a lot of debt themselves. When I teach my students about microeconomics and I say, well, you have supply and when the price decreases, you will see less supply because people are not willing to supply in the market where the price is low. And then I was digging into your material, Gail, and it was really interesting to hear all of the different factors that actually need to be included when you see a price drop. Another factor that you also hit on is that if I have an oil rig and I might be producing at a deficit, it might still make a lot of sense to me to keep producing because if, if I don't, I might lose my, my crew. So I might be losing in the short run, but I have to hope that in the longer run, I could keep producing because prices pick up. So that was just one factor. I know that there are more factors out there that you've been looking on that really, where it kind of makes sense to keep producing at a deficit because we hope price will pick up. Well, what happens, of course, with oil is that you drill a well and a big share of your costs are up front. So once you've already got this well in operation, you're not going to go out there and physically cut it off. I mean, it's going to cost you money to do that. And as you said, you also want to keep your staff. 
So what you're going to do is you're going to keep all of those wells going as long as you do because can because they're going to throw off some positive cash flow. And so at least from that point of view, you know, they may not cover all of your overhead expenses, but at least they will be providing something to do that and have loan covenants that say you have to do such and such. So you're going to keep them up for that reason as well. So Gail, when I look at the spike in production, especially since 2010, a lot of the extra supply in the market that come from North America, which might not be too surprising since the marginal cost in producing here is a bit higher, especially compared to the Middle East. But where do you see this supply, this extra production go in the future? Do you see a, a decline in North America? You know, they can continue to produce from existing wells but they can't afford to undertake new projects that may be five or 10 years from now. So right now they're working on projects that they started five years ago. You know, we're doing our deep water. I think we're putting more production online from that because it started so many years ago. So that kind of counteracts part of the decline, say, in the Bakken. So you get some mixture in it. But I think the general direction is going to be down. But I think also if the there's lots of debt defaults, as we were saying, and a lot of financial problems, I think the demand is going to go down at the same time. Hey, Gail. So one of the, the one of the things that Morgan Downey brought up whenever we had him on a, on our show, and he had some amazing points. And one of the things that he was talking about is how expensive it's becoming as time goes on. And he's, he's looking kind of more in the next 10 years and beyond. As we look at these producers and, and where they're pulling their reserves from, the locations that they're using are getting more and more expensive. So like Saudi Arabia being able to pull it out of the ground, you would know the number a lot better than I do. But let's just say it's $20, their cost to pull it out of the ground in Saudi Arabia. That's slowly getting depleted. And as he was looking at it from a long-term perspective, he's saying that the price has to go up in the long run because of the cost it's going to take to pull oil out of the ground. So he was saying like up in the Arctic, it might be $200 a barrel just to pull it out of the ground as, as we continue to deplete these reserves. So my question for you is, as we look forward and, and we're thinking more long-term here, knowing that that cost is going to go up to the producers, but you've got this massive competition around the world to basically own the market share. Do you see the nominal price kind of slowly creeping up? And we're talking very long-term. Do you see that happening or do you see that the monetary policies of the world central banks at 0%, and my understanding is that your expectation is that would continue to persist, basically annihilates any type of margin and it's going to actually maybe keep the price a little lower than we might expect. Would it be the latter? Would that be a, a proper description of how you see the world moving forward? Well, there's a whole lot of resource that would be available if we could get the oil price up to I think the International Energy Association has one chart, a figure, I think it's 1.4 in the World Energy Outlook 2015, that shows the oil prices going up to $300 a barrel. And with $300 a barrel oil, there's no doubt that there's just a ton of oil out there. But the problem is that you can't make the world run on $300 a barrel oil. It just makes the cost of products too high relative to people's wages. And 
So I'm afraid that we've already hit that cap, hit $100, and then we're starting going back down. Uh, I think we're going to have a hard time. You know, maybe we get it up to 75, but it's going to fall back from that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So a few months ago, I wrote a blog post about how one could possibly calculate the intrinsic value of oil. And it was an article that I shared with, uh, with Gail. And that was really interesting to get feedback on because I always go to Gail's resources to be proven wrong. I'm smiling as I'm saying this because I know I'm prone to confirmation bias. I know that I have a tendency to always find people that agree with me whenever I have a thesis. And there's, it's no secret. I'm, I'm definitely more of a bull in oil than the Preston and also Gail. So when I see Gail's material and I can just read how well documented this, it's always really interesting for me to get back on whatever thesis that might be. And one thing I would like to, to address particularly is that the philosophical discussion that many academics and I can wrap my head around is the presence of a dynamic intrinsic value of one barrel of oil. If possible, Gail, I would like to hear your thoughts about what you think is a more realistic and sustainable price of oil over the next three to five years. 
especially given the discussion we had about affordability before? Well, I think what we've seen is that as long as debt can keep going up, the price can keep rising. You know, it, it, it's a combination of what wages do and how much debt increases. But once the debt stops growing, then you can't get the oil price to go up. I mean, what you, what you pay for it really has to be based on wages. Uh, you know, we can talk about the business sector, but the business sector depends on the workers. When it comes to the government, it depends on the workers as well. So if the wages of the workers are not rising enough, then you have to supplement it with debt. And as long as you can keep the debt growing, then the whole system can work. And Gail, just so our audience knows, what debt is it that you're referring to? Are you talking about the overall credit in the economy? Is that what you're referring to? Well, what we're looking at, if we're looking on a world basis, what happens is that as the dollar readjusts relative to the other currencies, that becomes a big problem for keeping the price of oil up. I absolutely love the fact that you're talking about that because one of the things that we've been talking about on our show a lot is really kind of Ray Dalio, billionaire Ray Dalio, net worth probably 16 to $19 billion. That's really his thesis. His thesis is that credit contraction and credit cycles are really what's driving the prices in, in all these markets. You know, We talk about his video. I don't know if you've ever seen Ray Dalio's video, Gail, but we'll, we'll send you the link to it if you haven't seen it after we're done recording. But that's his big point is that debt spends just like hard currency or your monetary baseline currency, which only makes up a small portion of the overall economy and the overall spending. So he says whenever that credit starts to contract, it has this ability to basically manipulate and adjust all asset prices around the world. So one of the things that I was watching and one of the reasons I really kind of turned into a, a huge bear in the markets in general, and the main reason for that was really looking at these credit cycles and quantitative easing ended in November, I want to say, of 2014. And then you really started seeing some changes there during that Christmas time frame of 2014 and at the start of 2015, where credit was starting to tighten. You saw this in the high yield market where it really kind of had the lowest yields at that point in time. And you've seen them slowly start to trickle up. And all these indicators that you're talking about is exactly what Stig and I have really been talking about a lot on our show. So Really refreshing to hear you say some of this stuff. This is this is just fantastic. I've got a question that I want to throw at you. So in the past three months, and this is one of the indicators that I've been talking about on the show that I'm really kind of looking for, for maybe a bottoming or signs that the oil market's really starting to show some changes is the default rates in the oil sector. So in the last three months, we've seen a number of defaults in the oil sector start to pick up. For example, in January, just this past January 2016, there was only $30 million in oil defaults. But by April of 2016, just last month, which was only three months later, there was nearly $15 billion in oil defaults. So my question is this, are we getting to uh, the point where, and you kind of already hit it, the, the fact that oil is going to, your ex expectation is in a, it's going to remain below $50 for this year. But are we getting in a point where you think that those defaults are going to continue to increase and get worse as time goes on? 
I'm sure that we're going to see more and more defaults. Uh, these companies have, uh, you know, they're trying to keep things together the best they can. Each of them says, I'm going to sell assets. And you wonder, you know, what are you going to sell your assets to? Hedge funds? You know, there's just not too many markets out there that want to buy these assets. When they do sell them, they've got to close them down and such things. The residual value is, is just not there. So it's not worthwhile. So November 2014, I, I was on the podcast and I said, hey, I think oil's going down in a major way. And the reason why is there's this massive supply demand imbalance. And I think it's going to you know crush the price. Three months later, Warren Buffett sold his ExxonMobil position and you really started seeing oil go way down. Here we are at you know May of 2016 and the price has had a, a slight recovery from as low as 26, which was crazy. It was there for just a, a, a snapshot in time, hovered around 30 a little longer. Now it's clear up 46. And so when we were out in Omaha, everyone was saying, hey, you know, it's coming back. It might have made the turn and everything. And I said, you know, I think in the last year and a half, the, the big thing has really been the oversupply. But I think now moving forward, it's really going to be all about the under demand because of the credit contraction. And I, I kind of see the global economy kind of turning in a bad direction. And I think that you're going to really start people you're going to see people really start to cut back on their demand for oil. Would you agree with that? Do you really think that the story in the next nine months is really going to be all about demand? It's been much more about all about demand so far and than people realize. And I think it's going to continue to be all about demand, that we just don't have the demand there. Now, if we were selling $20 a barrel oil, there would be plenty of demand. It's what happens is that you just cannot keep the demand up if you go to $100 a barrel. If you go to $150 or $200 or $300 a barrel oil, there's no way the demand is there. I think that's a really interesting discussion because, Gail, what you're saying is that the price of oil has to be somewhat low, otherwise we can't afford it. And then you would have other people, including me, and that's also why it's so good speaking to you, Gail, because I want my thesis to be tested here. Say that we don't have any more oil left at $30. Say that it's not profitable not to produce at this level, which is, is not for many companies. So say that the oil kind of has to go up to call it $50, $60, $70, and people can't afford it. Well, what would happen? Because you can't just replace a barrel of oil with a windmill. It doesn't have the same chemical properties. So what's the alternative here? Where do you see this going? Well, unfortunately, if we go back through history, we find that lots of civilizations have collapsed. And what they have collapsed from is too low a return on human labor. And that too low return on human labor is really human labor leveraged with whatever kinds of energy supplies you have. And what's happening now is the same thing that happened before. The wages of workers are not high enough. And if the wages of workers leveraged with energy supplies were higher, we'd be better off. But once the price of oil goes too high, it becomes too expensive to use to leverage the wages of workers. It's not just oil, but it's coal and all of these other things. So what has happened in the past is that the economies eventually have collapsed. They couldn't collect enough tax money, basically. But also the, the workers' wages were too low. 
So, Gail, a person who's listening to this podcast, their thought right now has to be, well, how does this happen? How did we get in this position that these are the circumstances that we're dealing with? Why do you think we've arrived at this situation? Why are we here at this at this juncture? I think the reason we're here at this juncture has to do with the fact that we've taken out most of the really cheap to extract oil. I mean, if you stop and think about it, Saudi Arabia, even if their price theoretically is $20 a barrel to get out, they still have to take care of all of these millions of people that really need a high tax base from this oil besides getting the oil out of the ground. So what's happened is that our cost of oil production, when you take into account all of those roundabout costs, uh, has gone up so much that we're in a position where it's hard to make the whole cycle work anymore. The workers are not getting enough out of it. We're ending up with a situation where students get out of school you know, they're in college forever, then they have lots of debt, it's hard to buy new houses, so that makes the building industry contract. You have all of these things going in so that the economy just doesn't grow the way it should. That is kind of keeping things back. And the fact that we've sent so much work to the parts of the world where the wages are so low. That's a really interesting discussion, Gail. And Preston, I we are tossed on this issue with the middle class in the US a few times before and it's like it obviously it's a political loaded question and I don't want to say well or not it's right or wrong but it's not good for the consumption that's one thing that's for sure in the US that accounts for approximately 70% of GDP so obviously that's a big issue that we have these problems with the middle class but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this globally because you have said a few times that even though that you might see a, a rising middle class for instance, uh, China, and you also see that in India, they still have much lower wages than they do in the US. So do you see that in time that the oil demand would be, in that in turn also the oil price will be supported by the less developed countries? Is that the way you see it? Or do you simply see that it would take too long and it would not be sustainable for those countries to support the oil price? Well, I, I'm not convinced that those countries can do it alone. I mean, we need... You know, our economy is very much tied into oil. China has tried to develop its economy around coal, and India also is uh, heavily into coal, not quite as much as China. It's hard to see that that's going to work. And I've been to India. I've been to both China and India. India is so far behind China, you can't believe it. But uh, it's hard to see that India can grow on its own or, or Africa. They need a cheaper energy source. Oil is just terribly expensive relative to coal. And that coal was what the Industrial Revolution started with, and coal is what China started with. And you have to have a cheap energy source to make things work. Okay, so before I ask the last question, I just want to encourage everyone out there, whenever they read some of the material, and they sent me an email saying, Oh, thank you, Stega. Now I think I understand the oil market. Please go to Gail's material also because she has a different opinion than me. So whenever you read some of the material that we have on the podcast, or I don't want to drag Preston into this, but some of the material that I know that I have put in there that are more bull and oil, always make sure that you have a second opinion. And I would definitely recommend Gail's material. But Gail, where can people find your material? 
Well, I have a blog, which is called ourfiniteworld.com. And so I have whatever some large number of posts, 270 or something like that. And you can go back and you can read individual ones of them. You can search for words. I also have a page where I've made PDFs of quite a few of them. All right, Gail, fantastic. And for people that are listening to the show, we're going to have the link to your website on our show notes. We're also going to have the link to that white paper that you wrote called Oil Supply Limits and the Continuing Financial Crisis. Gail, thank you so much for coming on our show. This was such a pleasure to talk to you about a debate that Stig and I have been pretty much having for almost two years now. So it was it was fun to bring you on and hear so much conversation where you agreed with my position because I, <laughs> I, I needed this. That's so good. (laughs) But thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it, Gail. All right. So that's all we have for you guys. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 